Good morning. Westridge. Happy New Year. I was just going to tell you how impressed I am that you got out on this cold morning to come to church, but that response after that, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything to you. Much is being written about this uh, decade we just finished uh, that reminds us how fragile we are. Uh, lots of things went wrong in the last 10 years. I don't have to tell you that. One of the best summaries I read recently was it was a decade in which we forgot our mission. We forgot our mission. Businesses, banks, government, even churches seemed like strayed, forgot their mission. And maybe it's time for us to get back to our mission, the church's mission, our mission, the mission that Jesus left us. That's what we're going to do in a series that's coming up. But as I think about that, uh, I know that I'm hopelessly, generationally time-warping myself. I think about the song that, uh, that Joan Osborne did a few years ago, entitled One of Us, in which she asked the question, do you remember this, what if God were one of us? And then speaking of God, she's saying, if you were faced with Him in all of His glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? And I'll hopelessly time warp myself even further by taking you back to David Gahan, lead singer of Depeche Mode, when he offers his, his service as your own personal Jesus. Put me to the test, he says. I will deliver. You know I'm a forgiver. Someone to hear your prayers. Someone who's there. Thanks, David, but I think I'll pass on your offer. But my good friends, Depeche Mode, uh, raise an interesting question that I think has led to us forgetting our mission. Will the real Jesus... Please stand up. Uh, is it possible that the real Jesus has been covered up this last decade with religious and political chatter? And so in the next couple of months, uh, we'll study encounters with Jesus, discovering, or in some cases, rediscovering who he really was, what he came to do, what he really taught. And hopefully, in taking a fresh look at his mission, we'll discover our own mission in the process. And so today, we come to the first official act of Jesus as an adult. And it was going into the wilderness to meet the accuser face to face and giving Satan the opportunity that my good friend Joan Osborne sang about. Only Satan gets... Three questions, not just one. The temptation in the wilderness forces us to ask the question, what kind of Messiah do we have? Now that's important because your picture of your Messiah will affect and shape your expectations of the church and those things which you value most. So here we go. The first official act of Jesus as an adult in the desert wilderness. It's Matthew's Gospel Chapter 4, follow along. Next, Jesus was taken into the wild by the Spirit for the test. The devil was ready to give it. Jesus prepared for the test 
by fasting 40 days and 40 nights. That left him, of course, in a state of extreme hunger, which the devil took advantage of in the first test. Since you're God's son, speak the word that will turn these stones into loaves of bread. Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy. It takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. For the second test, the devil took him to the holy city. He sat him on top of the temple and said, Since you're God's son, jump! The devil goaded him by quoting Psalm 91. He's placed you in the care of angels. They'll catch you so that you won't so much as stub your toe on a stone. Jesus countered with another citation from Deuteronomy. Don't you dare test the Lord your God. Now for the third test, the devil took him on the peak of a huge mountain. And he gestured expansively, pointing out all the earth's kingdom how glorious they all were. And then he said, they're yours. Lock, stock, and barrel. Just go down on your knees and worship me. And they're yours. Jesus' refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. No reference to Michael Jackson there at all. I'm not going to do that. He backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only Him. Serve Him with absolute single-heartedness. The test was over. The devil left, and in his place, angels. Angels came and took care of Jesus' needs. One of my favorite authors, Phil Yancey, writes about this encounter. Like single combat warriors, two giants of the cosmos converged on a scene of desolation. One, just beginning his mission in enemy territory, arrived in a badly weakened state. The other, confident and on his home turf, seized the initiative. The question for us is, what does this temptation in the desert wilderness teach us about the real Messiah and our picture of the Messiah, our conception of the Messiah, the real Messiah? And why would Jesus put himself in a position to be tempted this way. i got to admit to you, if I were God, and I had this encounter with evil himself, my first instinct would have been just to have destroyed him and been done with it. Just to zap him right then and there on the spot, leave him in an ash heap. Could have saved human history from a lot of untold tragedy. Could have precluded all my personal struggles with temptation. But the truth is, I don't always come out looking as good as Jesus in these tempting encounters. And so what's going on here? Maybe in this cosmic drama that is just beginning to unfold before our eyes in the Gospels, what we have here is the unmasking of Satan, not his ultimate undoing. Because at this point in the drama, it wasn't time for ultimate cage fighting. Maybe the two opponents were just sizing one another up in anticipation of a future encounter when it really would be no holes barred. I think there's a not-so-obvious temptation behind the temptation taking place in this text. I think there's a subtle theme that runs through every one of these tests. There's a thread that binds them all together. 
and forms the background for the temptation that we face today. The temptation behind the temptation was to alter the mission of the Messiah. The temptation behind the temptation, I think, to Jesus was to be the shortcut Messiah. I think the temptation for Jesus was to experience the good parts of being human without the bad. To savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and agriculture. To confront risk without any real danger. To enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection. In short, the temptation was to wear a crown, but not a cross. But how could Jesus sympathize with our temptations if He gave in, if He became the shortcut Messiah? Two other times in the Gospels, Jesus encounters these same issues to be the shortcut Messiah. The first, when Jesus was predicting His suffering and death, the impetuous Peter stepped up and proclaimed, Never, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. In essence, Peter was saying, Jesus, you don't have to go through this pain. I want you to be the shortcut Messiah. I've got a different mission for you. One that avoids the pain, the, the, the humiliation, the rejection. I don't want to see you go through this. And I think Jesus must have heard in Peter's statement the earlier accusations of Satan, tempting him toward an easier way. And so Jesus responds to Peter this way. He says, out of my sight, Satan, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. The second time in which Jesus confronted this was when he was nailed to a cross. It is perhaps the last temptation of Christ. A criminal scoffed, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And then spectators took up the cry, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. But you and I know there was no rescue. There was no miracle. There was no easy, painless path. Because for Jesus to save others, quite simply, he could not save himself. Now we read those accounts in retrospect and we think, how blasphemous Peter to, to presuppose that you know more than Jesus. And the comments while Jesus was on the cross, save yourself and us. What callous pride. And of course, Satan's taunts. Since you're the Son of God, dictating to Jesus what he should do. Easy to see through that, isn't it? Easy to preach the error of Peter's way. Easy to preach against the bloodthirsty Crowd, Very easy to spot Satan's challenge to Jesus to bypass the Via Dolorosa for easy street. So easy that at times I miss the times when I tempt Jesus in the same ways. Because there are times when I want Jesus to give final proofs about his existence. And his concern for me. I want God to take a more active role in human affairs as well. If God would just merely reach down and squash all the evil dictators and all the terrorists in the world, there'd be a little less pain on the evening news. I want God to take a more active role in my personal history too. I want 
quick and spectacular answers to my prayers. I want healing for all my diseases. I want protection and safety for my loved ones. I want a God without ambiguity. I want, I want, I want my own personal Jesus. I want to be able to tell him what to do. (laughs) And in the quiet moments of my soul, if I'll just listen, I can easily hear myself say to Jesus, just turn those stones into bread. Show up in some spectacular way, Jesus. Be my own personal Jesus. But Jesus resists. George MacDonald says he resisted every impulse to work more rapidly for a lower good. Jesus would not let his mission be co-opted. He'd let the rich young ruler go. He'd let the crowds dwindle. God's terrible insistence on human freedom is so absolute that he grants us the power to live as though he doesn't exist. To spit in his face. To crucify him. All of this Jesus must have known as he faced down the tempter in the desert wilderness, focusing his mighty power on the energy of restraint. On the energy of restraint. But that's how love is, isn't it? Although power can force obedience, only love can summon a response of love, which is the one thing God wants from us most. Jesus would tell us, what I want most from you is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The temptation to be the shortcut Messiah causes me to stop and ponder. Too many of my prayers are no more than temptations to Jesus. To help me take the easy way out. Do this, Jesus. Do that, Jesus. Make it easier on me, Jesus. Make it easier on yourself, Jesus, while you're at it. But he continues to exercise the energy of restraint. Now, the message of the Bible is that Jesus is going to come back one day. He is going to right all wrongs on that day. But until that day, we live by faith, not by sight. And our faith in the reality of that day energizes us with hope. And hope allows me to love others until that day. And that's all that matters. In contrast to the shortcut Messiah, Jesus makes another choice in the wilderness. And he stayed true to his mission. And that choice was to be the suffering Messiah. Now, the difference between the shortcut Messiah and the suffering Messiah is enormous. The temptation in the desert reveals a profound difference between God's power and Satan's power. Satan has the power to coerce, to dazzle, to intimidate. And every time we abuse power to force someone else to do our bidding, we enter into evil's realm. God's power, in contrast, is internal. It's non-coercive. If you're God, said Satan, then dazzle me. Act like God ought to act. And Jesus replies, 
Only God makes those decisions. Therefore, I do nothing at your command. God made himself weak for one purpose. To let us choose freely for ourselves what we're going to do with him. The Messiah we choose shapes our expectations of church and those things which we value the most. Now, I don't have to tell you, there are plenty of churches around that knowingly or unknowingly have chosen to follow the shortcut Messiah. That's part of the mission creep in the last decade, unfortunately, in this country. Those kinds of churches, they're manipulative. They're deceptive. They're rigid without leaving room for doubt and honest seeking. They place undue emotional pressure to make decisions that aren't really authentic. They discourage thinking for yourself. They elevate denominational dogma over spiritual formation. They engage in fraudulent fundraising schemes. They operate on the fundamental principle that the end justifies the means. And you don't have to be a church historian to remember the history in which we live. Inquisitions, crusades, state-mandated compulsory church attendance, televangelist hypocrisy, the list goes on and on. But do I have to tell you that today, you and I know some people whose only perception of church is the church that follows the shortcut Messiah? And that when they reject Him, they aren't rejecting the real Jesus, they're rejecting a misperception one that has been created by Christendom and church culture, not the Jesus revealed in the Gospels. We sometimes use the phrase Savior Complex to describe an unhealthy syndrome that obsesses over curing another person's problem. Maybe you know some people like that. What's interesting, though, is the true Savior, the real Messiah, He seemed remarkably free of such a complex. He had no compulsion to convert the entire world in his lifetime or to cure people who were not ready to be cured. He didn't build a temple or a synagogue. He didn't write or distribute books or tracts on the successful spiritual life. He didn't heal all the sick people in the world. He didn't leave any theological volumes. He didn't market any Jesus merchandise. He didn't cut any recording contracts. And so how's this for a non-manipulative invitation that he gives to you and me? Take up your cross and follow me. There it is. Now when we worship the shortcut Messiah instead of the suffering Messiah, we also end up placing importance on the wrong values in our life. That's another result of mission creep in our country and in our lives. Because ultimately, our own personal Jesus can't satisfy. Jesus didn't yield in the desert, but we have plenty of times. We've taken the shortcut. We've done the easy thing. We've avoided discomfort, even when it was for our best. I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, the way to destruction, that's a broad way, but the road is narrow that leads to salvation. It's the road less traveled. Too often, I want to seize control of the situation. You know, just in case God's too busy, I'll take over for Him. And when I do, I forget my mission. 
for me, uh, and I'll update my generational time warp here, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker character in The Dark Knight comes the closest to this kind of evil and temptation that Jesus faced in the desert. The Joker describes himself in the film, you may remember in one scene, as an agent of chaos. No rules, no regret, constantly testing the boundaries of others just to see how they're going to respond to someone who just wants to see things burn. And of course the temptation is, will the dark night exercise the energy of restraint? Or will he become just like the evil that he confronts? The Hebrew writer confirms what we've already learned in the desert. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And so let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This year, this new decade, let's resolve to follow the suffering Messiah and get back to His mission for us and for our church. Because after all, He's not the Messiah we deserve. He's the Messiah we need.